Good morning, everybody. Normally at this time, we tell you to put away your cell phones, but this morning, I'd like you to take them out. Because if you are a young adult and you are at Resound, you'll know that uh, uh, we, I promised you that the next time I preach, I would do, um, I would do a live poll. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to have a lot of fun with this, okay? We're going to do two questions. You're going to get a chance to respond to them, and it will all update on the screens. It's a very cool program that uh, I paid a lot of money for. And so... Please use it. We'll use it this once. And um, okay, so what you're going to do is if you, if you want to text because you, you have a dumb phone, then you will text 37607 and there will be a keyword. So you'll, you'll vote by putting a keyword in and texting it to that number. That's your phone number, okay? Or you, if you have a smartphone, you can go to pollev.com forward slash myselfland and then you can get this really slick, nice way of voting. And uh, so I'll just let you all get there. Okay, and uh, I'm going to have to, oh, I thought my phone died. Oh, so I've got to start the poll. Okay, so this is the first one. This is just a warm-up one. It's not very serious. I mean, it's kind of serious, but not really. Okay, so here we go. David, there we go. If you could see one miracle today, would you choose gifting Chris Puhatch with contemporary dance skills, <laughs> making Stefan Dirksen sit still, growing hair for Ray Yoder, getting hired at Southland. These are all things that people pray for. And so uh, we're going to the, go to there and pray that it starts. Here we go. All right, and I shall start the poll. And you can start texting in, and you'll find uh, that this thing just updates. Right? Yeah, see, Ray Yoder? Oh, dear. Okay. I can only take 250 votes, so you better vote quick. Okay. Very nice. Thank you. This feels like vindication for me. Oh, Ray Yoder. I think what we should do is take a screenshot of this and put it up next week when he preaches. I didn't realize he was preaching. I'm going to make his life horrible this week. Wow. Okay, so it's a tie between uh, Pewhatch and Dirksen. It's kind of like Stefan has contemporary dance skills, eh? The way he doesn't stand still. Okay, that would be it. Thank you for voting for Ray Yoder. That makes me happy. So I'm going to turn off this one. And uh, now we are going to go to this next one. This next, uh, who is this man? I want you to look at this man, and I want you to tell me who he is. So I'm going to give you four options, five options. Here we go. Option number one, he is a random poor man. Number two, a famous poet, number three, a president, number four, a filthy rich yerba mogul, or five, Ray Yoder's only male relative with hair. <laughs> so we're going to start this poll off, and same deal, you can either text in or vote by texting in those keywords, poor man, poet, oh yeah, Yoder hair. <laughs> I thought he kind of looked like an old Ray Yoder. I think Ray Oler is going to be kind of gravelly like that when he gets older. <clears throat> you know, how many of you actually like Yerba? I've never tried it, but I think it's gross. <laughs> Interesting. You know, a lot of people last, uh, last time voted for Poet as well. And I'll just see. Actually, we are at our limit. So that's where it has to stand. Uh, and second place, Yoder Hair. But the truth is, this man is uh, not Ray Yoder's only relative with hair. He doesn't have any. 
It is, he is a president. He's the president of a country. He's the president of Uruguay, and he's known uh, around the internet, this is how I found him on Facebook, thank you Facebook, he's known as the poorest president in the world, and he's called the poorest president in the world because he gives away 90% of his income to the poor. He lives in a small house, drives an old tractor on his farm, never wears a necktie, in fact he hates them it says, and uh, he's the president of a country called Uruguay in South America. But, um, He's very liberal, and so he's not, a good, uh, he's not a good role model necessarily, but that's who he is. And you know what? I wanted to get you to look at him and make some judgments, because today we're going to the Sermon on the Mount, Do Not Judge, Matthew 7. So I've tricked you all into sinning, and, <laughs> but it's okay to have fun with this sort of thing. You know, it's interesting because BBC actually did, uh, ran a news article this week where they did a huge survey and a huge research project where they tried to find what types of faces are considered, uh, you know, obviously the most attractive or the most trustworthy or the least trustworthy, that sort of thing. And they compiled all of these faces and then they took a a computer model of them and they, they now have computer sort of models of which face looks the most trustworthy, you know, just based on first impressions. It's very interesting. Not that you can do anything about it, but we live by first impressions, don't we? We really do. And we, we actually live by judgment. We really do. Like, for example, if you were walking down the street in Los Angeles at night and you saw this group of young men in leather coats coming your way, what would your, what would your natural response be? Would it be, number one, you know, run for your God-given life? Or would it be like, oh, look at the nice boys off to Bible study, right? Like, you live with this kind of overriding uh, judgment, often based on fear. It's like, what would you think What would you think if a potential new business partner came dressed, you know, casually for a suit and tie meeting? What what do you think about people who actually like the Princess Bride? Like, what do you think if you were a visitor to Southland and Stefan took the stage? You wouldn't judge me that way. But it's true, we do judge, don't we? It's in our hearts. It's who we are. And Matthew 7, verses 1 to 2 says this. It's a famous passage. Do not judge so that you won't be judged. For if the judgment you use, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. How many times have you challenged someone on their character or behavior and, and they re- turn around and they reply, you can't judge me. What you, who are you to judge me? Better yet, how many times has somebody challenged you? And all you can think about the hypocrisy of what they were saying, regardless of the truth. If this verse means what it appears to mean on a clear first reading, then we are absolutely justified in calling hypocrite on those who question our character or on those whose character we question. However, you got to know that if you're going to call someone a hypocrite, that you're being just as judgmental as they. So we find this challenge in in this passage. And you know, I felt, I struggled with it this week as I was thinking of it, because on the one hand, we really need this message, do not judge. In this community, many other communities like it that are religious often have a legalistic spirit in their past. We know that coming from a place like this, that this command, do not judge, is one that's hard to live by, and many people haven't. I had a, I had a British neighbor, uh, a British immigrant neighbor uh, in Deerfield, and she, would, she told me about the, the discrimination she felt in our town. I thought, how is that possible? It's crazy. So I just want to, you know, get out and shout this to everybody. But on the other hand... The culture looks at our church, and they scream intolerant at us every time we stand up for righteousness. 
And the tragic thing is that many churches have caved to the cultural pressure, and they use this verse as their justification. So now as a church, we're actually kind of handcuffed. We can't even comment, otherwise we'll be called hypocrites. And you know, you may notice that in a lot of the Sermon on the Mount, there is this odd paradox to each scripture. There is this kind of dual layer of common sense that goes. Like if you just read, do not judge, you know what it means, you know what it's saying. But actually there's this other layer that's underneath that makes it hard in the real life. You know, I have some friends who came from uh, very, very ultra-legalistic religious communities. And we've, a lot of us have had experiences with, with communities like this or people who are ultra-religious and that sort of thing. And they come out of there and they find all this freedom and now they look back and they actually don't know how to talk about the place that they left because they don't want to be judgmental. They've been told, you know, don't say anything, uh, don't say anything at all if you don't have anything nice to say, right? But you've also been told, speak the truth in love. And in real life, you actually feel this tension in your heart. What am I allowed to say and what am I not? So what we need to do is we need to think carefully and prayerfully And we need to read this passage in light of all of Scripture. And that's what we're going to do this morning. And so before we get into the message, let's start by praying. Father, I thank you that you are already present in your Holy Spirit and that you've prepared our hearts to change, not just come and learn, not just come and be here, but to actually change. And so, God, I pray that you would meet us this morning. Thank you for your word that's true. Thank you that we can understand it. Thank you that we don't have to be doctorates and and all these things to understand what you are saying in your scripture. So just help us to think clearly about it this morning and to leave here with a renewed sense of what you mean to say to us this morning. Amen. So we're going to start this morning by telling you what Jesus did not mean when he was saying do not judge. What Jesus was not saying. First of all, he did not mean that a Christian can't be a judge in the legal sense. Now, this would be a really complicated view to take, especially because there's an entire book of the Bible called Judges, but stranger things have happened than that. So are we to suggest that no Christian can actually be a judge? What are we supposed to answer to that? No, of course not. Of course that's not what Jesus was talking about here. He's not talking about the legal system. And you know, this may be an odd place to start, but this is precisely what a skeptic does with a saying like this. They look at this, and they make it a universal saying that applies to everybody. Then they find the exception to the rule. What do you mean? A Christian can't judge then? And they hammer you with it, and they say, look, what about the authority of Scripture? Is this really what you mean? So this is a good place to start, because you see that if you can poke one hole into this passage, a skeptic will take the the whole thing. But the truth is, and this is what we're going to discover, is that Jesus was able to say a general word to an entire audience and yet have it not, not have it apply to the entire audience. Did you know that? You can actually say something, a directive, that's important for everybody to hear, but it actually doesn't apply to everybody in the same way. So that's the first thing Jesus was not saying. Jesus also wasn't saying that you can't use discretion. Discretion is good judgment. Now, you can't exercise discretion without judgment. You can't do it. So I found this proverb uh, is brilliant. It explains it well. It's in Proverbs 2, verse 11 to 15. Discretion will watch over you, and understanding will guard you. And here many people would stop and they'd say, absolutely, amen. You know, as you're making choices in life or as you're deciding what movie you should see, whether it's moral or not or that sort of thing. But if you were to put a person in here, they'd say, ah, 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 you're not allowed to judge the person. But this verse goes on to tell us that actually discernment guards over even the people we choose to associate with. 
Discretion will watch over you and understanding will guard you, rescuing you away from the way of evil, from the one who says perverse things, from those who abandon the rights, the right paths to walk in the ways of darkness, from those who enjoy evil and celebrate perversion, whose paths are crooked and whose ways are devious. You see, we're given permission to use good discretion, judgment, when we're choosing who we're going to hang out with this evening. Because different people, you know, like the saying goes, show me your friends and I'll show you your future. And that is so true. And yet it's difficult. And I remember being in high school and being invited to the parties. And these were guys that I, I wanted to be friends with. And I, and I wanted to, like, show them that I didn't judge them and I accepted for them for who they were. But I knew that if I went there that I might be compromising and I'd put myself in danger. And it was, I remember being in high school and feeling the tension of exactly this. But we're allowed to judge people in this way. In fact, God even wants you to judge him. Many times God says to judge him. In Joshua 24, this is Joshua's farewell address. He's been giving a lot of instructions to the Israelites. He says this, it's a famous passage, Therefore, fear the Lord and worship him in, him in sincerity and truth. Get rid of the gods of your father, fa- pardon me, get rid of the gods your fathers worshipped beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt, and worship Yahweh. But if it doesn't please you to worship Yahweh, choose, judge, discern for yourself today the one whom you will worship, the gods your fathers worshipped beyond the Euphrates River, or the gods of the Amorites in the land you are living. But as for me and my family... We will worship Yahweh. We've judged between these gods and these false gods. Even the ones that offer counterfeit power. We don't want the counterfeit. We want the real thing. Many times in the Old Old, uh, Testament, you'll see scriptures that say exactly this. Now, you are all very grateful for good discernment. I know that. And I have kind of a silly illustration here for you. But part of my job... um, on the staff here is to write curriculum for our children's ministry. And I noticed a few years ago that basically every coloring page that we do is ugly. There's just a lot of bad coloring pages out there of different Bible stories and stuff like that. So um, I commissioned an artist, Chris Barkman, to start drawing a picture that would go along with every week's message. And so he does a beautiful job. They're all cartoony um, and they're really, really nice. And But what we did on the other side is we started, when we were looking for uh, other coloring pages, we started a collection of all the terrible ones uh, for some levity in our very, very hard and pressing job. And I thought I would share one for you this morning. Actually, a couple. So this is one. This is Elisha calling down the bears to slaughter the youth. (laughs) I have blurred out the uh, water stamp that tells you what coloring book it's from. Um, but this is one that you probably don't want your kids coloring, right? right? Or the one where, where um, David cuts off the head of Goliath and is cuddling his head. I, didn't even, I couldn't even put that one up here. I just, I couldn't. I couldn't stomach it. Okay, now this is one of our pictures. Okay, just, oh, look at that. That's Elijah calling down fire from heaven. Isn't it beautiful? Awesome, I know. Good job, Chris Barkman. This is the one we didn't use. Now, it's not that the drawing is so bad. It was the tagline. (laughs) Because this is not the message we want to send to our kids. You know, like when they're going off to religious exercises in the morning. Beat that, you pagans, you know. No, 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 we won't color that one. You see, 
It's ridiculous to try and live a life devoid of judgment. It's just a ridiculous thing to think about. Whether it's in business with employees or friendship or school or university, you can't avoid good discernment. How many of you chose a high school class or a university class based on on, on the rumors you had just heard about the professor? And you didn't take others if you had heard bad rumors. This morning you made a decision what you were going to wear. Your wife immediately judged you. That was not sinful. That was merciful. You know, on the way to church, you corrected your children's behavior, siding with your daughter, because your daughter, your daughter is beautiful and clearly always innocent, unlike your delinquent children. You always have to judge. You always need to make judgments every day. And we can laugh about it, but the truth is it's serious. So already you can see that there must be sweeping caveats throughout Scripture on judgment. So what is this passage talking about if we know that sometimes judgment is acceptable and other times it's not? Well, in order to understand what Jesus was saying, you need two things. The first thing you need is this. You need to consider the audience to whom he was speaking, but more than that even. See, there were two general audiences that were either, that were often following Jesus around. There were the Pharisees who were often following, or there were new disciples. And you have to remember that everybody that followed Jesus was a new disciple because he had only been, even at the end of his ministry, he had only taught for three years. So everybody was new to this life, this radical life that Jesus was preaching. And so there were either Pharisees in the crowd or who would hear about this message later, or they were new disciples. And that's very significant. However, when we read the scriptures, you don't assume that the person, that the audience in the story is the audience to whom the, the author is writing to. Okay, so let me explain this. Matthew may not have been writing to those audiences. He may not have been. Because Matthew, looking, thinking about who he wanted to write to, was highlighting different things that Jesus said to make sense to a particular audience that he was trying to, that he was trying to reach. So, for example, if Jesus is preaching to the Pharisees, it, that doesn't mean that you have to be a Pharisee to get any truth from it. No, not, that's not true at all. It means it's, it, there is something for, the, for everybody. Uh, depend, or there's something for the audience that the, the author was writing for. That sounded a little confusing. Whoa. Stick to your notes, Tom. (laughs) So, who was Matthew writing for? To understand uh, what Matthew is trying to communicate, you need to understand the audience he had in mind when he was writing his gospel, and they were new believers, typically Jewish converts in need of discipleship. Now, they were not necessarily young believers, but new Christians young in the faith. And if you read all of Matthew, you'll see the progression. David Pawson calls Matthew a discipleship manual. So if you start at the beginning and you march all the way through, you see a progression that will take disciples to maturity. And what is the last thing that Jesus says in Matthew? Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Now that you've been discipled and learned how to live, I want you to go out and reproduce yourself and make more more disciples. Now, Matthew was quite old when he was writing his gospel. And it was intended to challenge, uh, address the challenges that faced the Christian converts to Christianity. And incidentally, Paul tailored his messages in exactly the same way. He would say specific things in specific letters to specific communities. And then in another letter, he would say something completely different, sometimes different on the same topic. Like you'll notice in one place he says, do not eat meat offered to idols. In another place he says, 
It doesn't matter if you eat meat offered to idols because it's just a dead God anyways. It has no power. And you go, what is he talking about? Well, he's addressing different audiences and their specific needs. This is exactly what we do here every week. You know, two weekends ago, Chris Dirksen preached on lust, and he warned everybody in the, in the congregation that he was going to do that, and that if we weren't comfortable with kids hearing it, that they should maybe leave. But he had to preach it. Do we not pre- teach kids about purity? Of course we do. We just teach them in a different way. So if I were to write a book on purity, I'd write it different for an adult than for a child. This totally makes sense, and this is exactly what the authors of the scriptures did. And to understand what they really meant, you have to understand who they were writing to. You see, Matthew, as well as, was highlighting this radical new way of living that Jesus was teaching. That's what he was pulling out. He wanted wanted his disciples to look at the old traditions in a radical new way. He knew that for a long time after, there, there would be some Christians who converted from Judaism who would hold on to the old traditions, right? Some of those laws as sacred. They were important to them. But there would be others who would abandon the old law completely. They wouldn't want any part of it to come with them into Christianity. There would be issues of, you know, circumcision and Old Testament law and who had the authority to do what and whether the Gentiles were allowed to enter the family of God. All of these things came from an old tradition. And for these people, Matthew was saying, you need to be really careful. You need to be really careful that you don't judge. He was writing to that specific audience that was sort of, they sort of had a, they they were sort of conditioned to judge by the Judaism, by the system of Jews, and now they were coming in. He's saying, don't judge, be careful. But in truth, we're going to find out that Matthew was actually saying, do not judge, at least not yet. Just wait a little bit. You know, if you've ever led someone to Christ, you know that that person can be one of the most judgmental people. Is that not true? Or maybe you remember when you came to Christ and suddenly you'd found this new freedom and everybody around you didn't love Jesus as much as you, right? Certainly not your old friends that you were leaving. I mean, now you couldn't even, you couldn't even talk to them, right, anymore because you'd left them behind. But it's worse even in the church. You know, you have this new convert and they, they pick up this book and they're so excited about reading their Bible, they read it through in the 90-day challenge and they look at somebody who's older in the faith and they go, what do you mean you only read a chapter a day? Look at how much time I'm spending in the, in the prayer room. Look how spiritual I am. And they judge, they pass judgment on those who don't do that. To those people, Matthew was writing, do not judge. Be very careful. Matthew understood that the new Christian converts might look back on their Jewish traditions with contempt or their families or the older believers who didn't express the same kind of zeal that they did. And for them, Matthew said, do not judge. You know, this can happen even to people who leave one church for another. You leave one church, you find new life in another church, and suddenly family gatherings are tense. And it's like everything you say is just about this new amazing thing that you've experienced, and everybody else needs to come and join you, and you need to be careful. But that's not to say, just because this was written towards new believers— that there isn't something for everyone to believe. In fact, I know that there are people who need to be reminded of this message, even if they're hearing it for the millionth time. You see, there's one, there's one thing I need to point out here. It's significant who Matthew was writing for, but it's also significant who Matthew wasn't writing for. And do you know who he wasn't writing for? Non-Christians. 
Matthew was not a gospel that was intended to be used in evangelism to lead people to Jesus. Mark did that. Mark wrote the first gospel. It's very fiery. It's kind of, it's written for people who are kind of on the edge trying to make their decision about whether they like Jesus, follow him or not. But that wasn't Matthew's intention. He was writing it for a different audience. Now, this is really important because mature believers often fall into this trap of assuming that it's for everybody. You see, we need to remember that the do not judge is very important when we're talking to non-Christians. We need to be exceptionally careful when we pass judgment on those who are outside of our faith because their standard is different than ours. And I have an example of this. A few years ago, I met with a, a young guy. He was in grade 10 at the time. And this is often what happens is that I'll have kids in, in the junior, I would have kids in the junior high program and then they would graduate, go into high school. And if their life would fall off the rails at that point, their mom would bring them back to me because I was the pastor that they knew, the last pastor that they knew, right? And so I meet with a lot of uh, young high school students. And she brought him to me, and he was living a really bad lifestyle. Uh, he, had, he had made really bad decisions, and uh, he was disappearing for days at a time. They didn't know where he was going and that sort of thing. And basically, when a mom brings a son to me, what she's telling me is, fix him. Please, fix him. But what could I do? I said, well, you know, do you, I said, you know what you're doing is wrong. Yeah, whatever. We kept going and going and going, and suddenly I just stopped. I said, look, do you even believe that there's a God? He goes, no. I said, well, I can't very well expect you to live the way I live if you don't even believe that there's a God. And his mom was, she, she was floored. She'd never heard this before. He was brought up in the church. He knew all the right answers. Now he doesn't believe there's a God. Well, that was, that was the way he could, he could, that was the way that he could, like, without any kind of uh, conviction, live the way he was living. And so I said, okay, I'm going to meet with you, but we're not going to talk about your behavior. We're going to talk about other things first. And I took him through five questions. Is there a God? Which God is it? Did, the God reveal them? Did that God reveal himself? Is the revelation reliable? And will you submit to the truth? Those five questions. And this guy was so funny. You know, we'd be working through something, and then he would text me from class. I knew he was in class, and he was texting me. And he'd be like, what do you think about this? And he thought he would, like, totally stump me. And I'd be like, oh, child. <laughs> Let's at least be original. You know, and I would fire off a short answer. And he'd, Whoa. And so I convinced him, number one, that there is a God. He came to believe that there is a God. Number two, he came to believe that that God is Jesus. So the first one is philosophy. Second one is uh, uh, comparative religions. The third one is, uh, did that God reveal himself? Yes, through the Bible. And the questions he often sent me were on the reliability of the Bible. And then, is the Bible reliable? And I took him through all those. And do you know what he said? God is real. There is a Christian. It is the Christian God. He revealed himself through the Bible, and the Bible is reliable. And then I said, so will you submit to the truth? No. I won't do it. I said, but do you understand what that means? Yeah. I said, tell me what it means. It means I'm going to hell. I said, that's right. And then we could talk about behavior. But the way he was living was far too attractive and far too captivating for him to change. Now, what I want you to see is this. I didn't accept his behavior. From the first time we met, I said, this is not good behavior. And we worked at ways to make it, you know, more manageable, because it was really bad. In fact, I told him he was probably going to get arrested. Um, I just understood that if I went into that, those kinds of meetings with my guns blazing, you know, you're doing this and this and this wrong, very, very judgmental, that I would lose my chance to ever even address his behavior. 
So we need to be careful that we don't hold people outside the church to the same standard that we hold them within. It's very important if we're going to win them. You will win far more people by your lifestyle than with your words. I was just telling someone between the services that the first person I led to Christ after I became a Christian told me uh, that when he was in high school, he, he talked about these guys, Mark and Mike, and he said, you know, Mark and Mike were always so happy. I always wanted what they had but didn't know what it was. Mark and Mike were not evangelists. They were typical high school volleyball players, but because they had Jesus in them, they lived differently, and that was more powerful than their words, and that's a good reminder. Number two, if you're going to understand what Jesus said, you need the second thing. You need this critical qualifier. You will be judged according to the same measure. How many times can we say that every person starts at a different place in their walk with Jesus? You know, Stefan preached on that maybe a year or two ago already, and it's come up in many messages since then. Everybody starts at a different place in their walk with Jesus. You can't expect that someone who became a Christian as an alcoholic will be able to kick that sin simply because they came to Christ. It, that sometimes happens, and that's wonderful. It's miraculous when it does happen, but that isn't the rule, and we need to have grace for people as they leave one lifestyle and come into another. It's very different than for me, who was brought up in the church, got baptized, and then became a Christian because I was walked away from God. Very different expectations. Very different so when we pass judgment on someone's lifestyle with harsh, ungracious fury, particularly when they don't know better yet or haven't found victory yet, we should expect that God will use that exact same measure against us and where we're at in our walk with him. Because there aren't many of us that are actually right where we should be at the moment. I remember as a kid, I have this memory that has stuck with me and it came back to me as I was preparing this message. I went to church in a different community. It was a fine church, a good church. The problem was it was filled with people. And so there was all sorts of nonsense that happened as people tend to bring into churches. And I was probably 11 or 12 at the time, and my best friend, uh, his dad was an ex-con. So his dad, I don't know what he went to jail for, but he had been in jail for a period of time, and he was a, he was a rough around the edges kind of guy, but I, we really got together, uh, really got along and, and hung out a lot. And I remember one time my dad came back from a leadership meeting at church, and he was, I don't know whether he was like furious or like beside himself or exasperated or just tired, I don't know what it was, but he, he was something, you know? And I kind of looked at him and I said, like, what, what happened? And he said, Tom, your friend's dad got another letter so what do you mean? He got a letter, no name to it, in his church mail file, telling him that we don't want him at our church. This isn't the first one. I remember, like, 11 or 12 being, what? How can this happen? How can this happen? See, the church can do damage, can do tremendous damage. You know, the person who wrote that letter, they're going to be held accountable for that action. And whoever it is will at least have the luxury of looking their judger, their judge in the eyes when he calls them on it. You can't even look the person in the eyes when they write an anonymous letter. Now again, I'm not accepting bad behavior, and I might not remember the whole story because I was a kid, but as far as I know, this wasn't about bad behavior. This was about past bad behavior and the discomfort 
of some anonymous accuser. You see, we can't, we can't allow that. We can't allow that to stop people from coming to church and to Jesus. Our culture gets it partially right when they claim that Christians are judgmental, and they mean in the bad sense. But they're mistaken because they believe that the answer to judgmentalism is tolerance. They believe that moral tolerance is the supreme ethic. Now, that isn't true. The supreme ethic is love, which is different from tolerance. And truthfully, it is a lack of love that is the reality behind the command, do not judge. It's a lack of love. You remember, all the prophets and the law hang on two commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind, and love your neighbor as you love yourself. That means that a command like, do not judge, is addressing a lack of love. That's what it's addressing. Unfortunately, people never really grow up. And so just like a child who needs the threat of consequence of bad behavior, Jesus added something that was really straightforward. He used a very vivid word picture in typical Jewish-like exaggeration. He says, why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but don't notice the log in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, and look, there's a log in your eye? Hypocrite! First take the log out of your eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of, your, out of your brother's eye. See, Jesus is saying that you had better not pass judgment on someone if you are struggling with the same sin as them, or any sin, or sin with worse consequences. So let me make this really plain. Modesty is a great example. It, it really illuminates the issue. Many men have come to me and said, you know, this, this person, so-and-so person, can you go talk to them because they're dressing inappropriately? Uh, and and they, they want me to talk to them because it's causing them to lust. I've had several men come and say that to me. You know what I say to them? Uh, no, it's not. Your own heart is causing you to lust. Your own heart is the issue. So while you judge someone who may be a new believer, which was the case, or unaware of how they come across, or simply broken in their self-image, You've put all the responsibility for your heart on them. Now, am I, am I saying there isn't a place to address modesty? No, of course not. We have to address modesty from time to time. But what I am saying is that whenever we put the blame for our issues onto someone else, we are in the wrong. That's judgmentalism. It would be no different than if the immodest person went and blamed the way they dress on their parenting, their desire to receive attention and love. They can't do that either. We must take responsibility for our own lives and stop blaming other people for our own fleshly nature. What are you going to say when you get to Jesus? It's not my fault she was pretty? No, no, no. You have to take responsibility for your own heart. Besides, you have to keep in mind that as much as we strive for spiritual maturity within this church family, there's no guarantee that anybody out there is going to follow our example. And eventually you're going to have to go buy milk. So you had better get this thing in check. See, the problem is that man's fleshly ambition is to be God. To sit in judgment over a person is to take God's place. Sometimes a person justifies their, their judging by saying, oh, I was just trying to help. I was just trying to help. Well, that's kind of an escape thing. It's true that if you've struggled or are struggling with a sin, you may be the best person to recognize the warning signs in another person's life. You can say, maybe, look at me, don't do what I've done. But that's help, wildly different than blame. And that's offered in love. 
And it's still taking responsibility for your own sin and waving it as a warning. You know, this is exactly what David spoke about in Psalm 51, verse 13. Psalm 51, verse 13, you have to remember what this is. This is David's absolute gutter, uh, or guttural cry out to God for forgiveness. He has just been found out. He's been having an affair. He's had a child in that affair, an Ill- illegitimate child. He has killed. He is, a, he is a murderer. He's deceived. It is horrendous. It is horrendous what he has done. And now a prophet has come to him, convicted him of his sin, and he's written this incredible psalm that you can read where he's pleading with God, please forgive me, please don't take your Holy Spirit from me. And you know what he says? He says, I promise that if this turns out, then I will teach the rebellious your ways, and sinners will return to you. He's saying, I promise I will take everything I've done and I will turn it around and I will help other people come back to you. But even if that's your goal, we have to be careful because it's a short step from helping someone to assuming the role of the Holy Spirit in other people's lives. To judge others without measuring our sin first is pride. So we need to pay careful, careful attention to our motivation in our hearts before we judge someone. And there are many examples of sinful judging in the New Testament. Here are just a few. The disciples' objection to the woman who anointed Jesus' feet, they judged her. The disciples' attempt to send the children away, they judged children. The woman caught in adultery was judged by the crowd. And the Pharisees' objection to eating at Matthew's house. And you know what? I listed the Pharisees last because there's lots of illustrations and we pick on the Pharisees. The truth is, the disciples were just as judgmental. So it's safe to say that Jesus was serious about his command in the Sermon on the Mount not to judge. However, with all of this said, there is a degree of judgment which has been delegated to us, to people. And what we're going to see is that Jesus actually makes allowance for it right in this passage. So when are we supposed to judge? Well, I've already shown that Jesus was not saying that a Christian can't be a judge in a court of law, and that he wasn't saying that we couldn't have good judgment or discernment when it comes to choosing our friends wisely. But there are also times when we are told that confronting sin is necessary, and that remaining silent would actually be the greater sin. Scripture is clear on this. James James writes this, My brothers, if any of you strays from the truth and someone turns back on him, turns him back. Let him know that whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his life from death and cover, old, cover over a multitude of sins. And this is, his, this is kind of his summary statement at the end of a, long, of, of a fairly long letter. And that letter makes people feel very uncomfortable. James does not sort of go around and, and sort of soft sell this thing. He goes right to the heart and he goes hard. And he says, and in case you think I'm just being judgmental, no, no, no. My motivation is that I want to save you from hell. I want everybody to turn a sinner from the error of their ways so that they can experience life and not eternal separation from God. That's a big deal. That's what James is talking about. And then there's the classic story from 1 Corinthians, the letter that Paul wrote to his friends. He says, It is widely reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and the kind of sexual immorality that not even the Gentiles would tolerate. A man is living with his father's wife, and you, 
You are inflated with pride instead of filled with grief so that he who has committed this act might be removed from your congregation. He's saying, you guys are proudful. You're proud to not get rid of this person from your congregation. It's horrible that you would tolerate this kind of behavior. For though I am not absent with you in spirit, I have already decided what should be done about the one who's committed this thing as though I were present. When you are assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus, with my spirit and with the power of our Lord Jesus, turn that one over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. You know what he's saying? He's saying, get rid of that person. Send them out of the church. Because what happens is within a church, you're under protection. You're under spiritual protection. He says, send them out of that spiritual protection so they can feel what it really feels like. And hopefully it will get bad enough and they will hit rock bottom and they will come back and be saved on the day of judgment. But don't let them stay here. Don't let them sing your songs with you. Don't let them pray with you. Don't let them take care of your kids in the nursery. Don't let them do any of that stuff. Send them out of here and hopefully when they're out there, things will go really bad and then they'll see their need for Jesus. These are really, really harsh words. And this isn't his only example. Every single letter that Paul writes is like, don't do this, do this. Don't associate with this person, right? Don't trust this person. He says that a number of times. See, this command not to judge has been used as an excuse to avoid confrontation, but that's not its intended purpose. That's not what it was intended for. The intended purpose is to force the immature Christian into silence and the mature Christian into humility, but still leave the door open for godly confrontation. That's what it's intended to do. And right here, I want to address another important observation because it's, or objection because it's going to lead into, it's going to explain this a little bit better. You know, someone might think they're clever, suggesting that Jesus was a hypocrite. Because, you know, he was being judgmental while preaching Sermon on the Mount, do not judge, and they would think they're very funny, but they're actually a nimrod. So, (laughs) but what they would be right about is this. They were right about him being judgmental, but what I want you to understand is this. We get really goofy here as people. You see, and especially in North America, especially in the West. See, there is a huge difference. There is a huge difference between somebody sending me a Facebook comment judging my character, and Pastor Ray walking down the long hall to my office to question my character. There's a world of difference. First of all, Pastor Ray and I are friends. We have a relationship. But it's more than that. He's my boss. He's my spiritual leader. And he has more authority than some random Facebook commentator. In other words, he's allowed to judge my character. He's allowed to because of his position and mine. There is a massive, huge difference between a young new believer or just a young person in general passing judgment on someone and a godly elder calling someone, calling, calling someone on their sin. Huge difference. Huge difference between a young person challenging the same sin as an older person judging the same sin. Huge, huge difference. And Jesus actually made allowance for this. Did you know that in, in this actual passage, he says that judgment is not bad, it's good? It's actually how he ends it. I was very confused at first when I read this. It, there's this weird little parable right at the end of Matthew 7, and it says this. It says, Don't give what is holy to dogs or toss your pearls before pigs, or they will trample it with their feet, turn and tear you into pieces. So what is he talking about here? 
This is a very well-known Jewish proverb. It's used in other places in Scripture. And it's talking about not throwing something that is worthwhile or good before people who won't receive it. He's actually talking about judgment here. He's saying there actually is a place for good, holy judgment. In fact, judgment is sacred, but if you throw it before the person who's not going to receive it, you're wasting your time. They're going to tear you to pieces. It corresponds to one of Solomon's Proverbs. He says in Proverbs 9, verse 7, the one who corrects a mocker will bring dishonor on himself. The one who rebukes a wicked man will get hurt. You see? There's an implication here. Jesus is saying that judgment is actually good, but that certain people won't learn from it. So be careful how you judge. So even in the case of the wise elder, here Jesus is saying that in order to pass judgment in a healthy, humble way, you need to be careful because we can waste that judgment on people who just don't care. But for those who do, and for those who will receive it, it's incredible. Even to be on the receiving end. Psalm 32 verse 1 says, How joyful is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. I want to be part of that joy as people live sin, uh, leave sin and find Jesus. Even the prophet Daniel spoke of the rewards awaiting those who lead others into righteousness. Those who are wise, he says, will shine like the bright expanse of the heavens, and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. You can't lead someone to righteousness unless you're teaching them how to leave unrighteousness. You can't do it. So then what Matthew 7 is actually giving us is not a command to never, ever pass judgment, not, not to ever call someone on their sin. That's not what it's about, but it's giving us a process. The first step is don't judge. Be careful. It has a sober warning. You need to be very careful before you enter into judgment. But if you do judge, examine your own heart and deal with your sin before you deal with the other persons, before you call the other person. And if you do judge before you judge, consider whether it will even be received. So don't just avoid it altogether. That's not what God is saying. He's saying consider your place and your authority. Don't judge if you're, if you're immature in the faith. If you do judge, examine your own heart, confess your sin, and then finally consider whether the person is even going to receive it or whether they're just going to trample it under feet and tear you to bits. This is the message that I truly believe that Jesus was giving his new disciples in the Sermon on the Mount. It's the emphasis that Matthew wanted in his discipleship manual for his audience, and this applied, this applied within our church will help us become mature believers as we follow after Jesus. And I want you to leave here with a little bit weighing in your heart, meeting Jesus and asking him about it. So I'm going to give you the challenge of the week. And we're going to spend some time, you might just get through one or two points, and that's fine. Uh, but we'll just let it, uh, we'll just, I'll just let you reflect on it, do some listening prayer while the band comes up and plays for us. And, uh, but this is how I'd like you to do it. Ask the Lord, is my tendency to judge or to avoid conflict? Is my tendency to judge or avoid conflict? Confess judgmentalism or passivism as sin. And then ask the Lord if there's someone that you need to make things right with. There might have been someone that you judged too harshly or somebody that you allowed to continue in complacency or sin after you sensed the Holy Spirit prompting you to call them on it. If there is someone who God put in your life because you have permission to, 
to challenge them in an area of their life and you didn't do it, that's sin too. So let's pray and let the Holy Spirit speak to us. Father, I pray now, as we just quietly reflect, that you would show us whether we are prone to judgmentalism or avoiding conflict. I pray that you would show us whether we've wronged people, either through judgment or through passivism. And I pray, God, that you would put the conviction in our hearts to change that little piece of who we are and that we would work at it in our relationship with you. Amen.